ready for Christmas yet? Have you done all your Christmas shopping? Now I think as, as I get ready for Christmas, I've kind of nailed it these days. I, I, what I need to do, I, I reckon, is I need to work out two things. I need to make sure that I get all of the good presents that I actually want. I hate surprises, I actually want to get the presents that I'm, I, I've chosen for myself. And then I need to get presents for everyone else. And so Black Friday just happened, and so yesterday I was online and did a whole bunch of Christmas shopping online. It was fantastic, and I don't have to go to the shops. And we now actually have a little system for the kids. And so instead of me rushing out to Kmart during the last week of Christmas, there in the middle of the night, 12pm, 1am in the morning or something like that, and just buying all the junk in the world, we've come up with a little plan as a family. And it's not something we came up with, somebody else uh, 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 told us about this. And so for the kids, this is what we do. We get something they want, something they need, something to wear, and something to read. Isn't that neat? Something they want, something they need, something to wear, and something to read. And it's really helpful. And so our two-year-old, she's getting bluey undies. Now, I'm not sure which category that fits under, whether it's something to wear or something she needs, or maybe something she wants. But the kids are very excited about this. But then there's the Christmas lunch preparations, and ham. Ham is the key. 
You've got to make sure that you're not buying a ham in the week leading up to Christmas. Turns out hams are very popular at that time of the year. And so you've got to pre-order your ham. And so that's what we've been doing the last couple of years. But last year we ordered too early and I ate all the ham before Christmas. <laughs> which is very poor preparation for Christmas. And so there's so much to do, isn't there, to get ready for Christmas. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you had a little house elf who could do all of these things for you? Who, you know, Christmas would be so much less stressful if we didn't have to do the shopping and order the ham and RSVP to the Christmas parties and make the salad for the Christmas parties and buy the kids gifts and all that sort of stuff. Christmas can be a very overwhelming time. And what often happens as a result is we take our eyes off the main game of Christmas. And so what I'm hoping we can do today is just to stop and think, how can we prepare ourselves in a spiritual way for Christmas? How can we stop and take stock at this time of year and keep Jesus on the agenda? And to do that, we're actually going to look at the way that God prepared His people for the arrival of Jesus. And the person who was sent to prepare God's people for the arrival of Jesus was John the Baptist. And he comes as a forerunner to Jesus. And we saw that in the, in the Bible reading, we just had a little Indy, she did a great job. But this is what it says, Luke chapter 1, verse 13. Have a look in your Bibles there. It says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Why? Well, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or other fermented drink and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous <coughs> to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Can you see what John's role is here? He's getting people ready for the coming of Jesus. He's the forerunner to Jesus. I don't know if you remember the movie Aladdin, but there's that great scene where there's this whole procession as Prince Ali marches into the city. And they, and, and they sing that great song, Prince Ali. I'm not going to sing it for you today. But there's elephants and there's dancers and there's fanfare and it's all announcing the coming of Prince Ali. John the Baptist comes as the way preparer, with a little less fanfare. But his purpose is to announce the arrival of Jesus. His role is to prepare the people of God for Jesus. And whilst he comes with a little less fanfare, he comes with a lot more forethought. In fact, John comes with hundreds of years of anticipation. Now this is amazing to me. Have a look there in Isaiah 40, this is what it says on the screen. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. Ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord 
will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so here we have this Old Testament promise that was made to the people of Israel after the promised land and put under the rule of the Babylonians for their unfaithfulness and their hard service, their, their punishment for sin had, been, had come to an end. And this was a promise that they would return to the land, that God's judgment would be lifted. And this is written 700 years before Jesus. And it says, one will cry out in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. And the New Testament authors, they pick up this prophecy when John the Baptist shows up and they apply it directly to John. So come with me to Luke chapter 3. This is where we see this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be lifted in, filled in, and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. You see what he's saying there? He's saying John is the way preparer. He's the Isaiah 40 character. He's the one who's going to come and pave the way for Jesus. He's, he's like the procession before Prince Ali. He's like the snowplow that's driving through the streets of Washington, making way for the president. And then you see it again in Malachi chapter 4. So that's 700 years ago in Isaiah and 400 years before Jesus in Malachi. And it says, See Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of, their children, of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So again, in the Old Testament, you get this figure who's announced who's going to come and prepare the way for the Lord. Now you might be wondering, well, how can John be the fulfilment of that promise? Surely we're looking for Elijah to return. But I think what Malachi is announcing here is the coming of a prophet. Elijah was the great prophet of the Old Testament. So essentially what he's saying is, is one like Elijah will come. And again, when Luke records his biography of Jesus, he picks that up, picks up the language of Malachi chapter 4 and he applies it unashamedly to John. So in verse 17, chapter 1, it says, He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so before John comes hundreds of years of anticipation. And Jesus comes John, who's paving the way for the Lord, ploughing the streets of Israel for the coming of, his, of, of Jesus. Now, why do the Bible writers take the time to point this out? Well, I think because it points to God's sovereignty in salvation. The fact that John came, before the, came, came after prophecies about him 
And before Jesus comes John to prepare the way for Jesus. And all of this is talked about hundreds and hundreds of years before the very first Christmas. Well, it shows us that Christmas is not an afterthought. Not only did John prepare the people of God for the coming of Jesus, but God had been preparing for this day long before John came onto the scene. Long before John was even born. Do you see it? God flying by the seat of his pants and cobbling together some kind of ad hoc plan for the first century. God had been talking to his people and preparing his people for the arrival of Jesus hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And you know what that means? Well, it means if you call yourself a Christian, your salvation is sure and secure in his hands. At this time of year, I often feel like there are so many balls in the air that I could easily drop any one of them at any time. You've got Christmas parties, buying presents, organising carols, making Christmas services happen, getting talks written, catching up with people just to love them, dinner with friends, loving the kids, spending time with them, hanging out with my wife, Prue. And any of these things could come crashing down at any moment. And sometimes we can imagine that God might drop the ball on me. What if he doesn't come through with the goods? What if his promise of salvation is not good, if he's not good for it? But God is not going to drop the ball on salvation. 700 years before the coming of John, he announces his arrival. 400 years before Jesus, he says, one like Elijah will come to get people ready for God. Before Mary falls pregnant with Jesus, John's arrival is forecast to Elizabeth and Zechariah. And when we look at the scope of God's forethought, well, it builds confidence, doesn't it? It says this is not some kind of half-baked plan that he, that he put together in desperation after creation went haywire. This is God deciding and then acting in history to make his decisions happen. God will not drop the ball on you. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, we really want you to see this. We want you to know that God is trustworthy, that he's faithful to his promises, that the promises we see in the Bible, that he's, he's good for them. And so if you make a decision to follow Jesus, you're, actually, you're back in a winner. But I guess the big question is, is well, how does John do this work of preparation? What does that look like? And there are two things that I want us to see. The first is, is that John acted like a signpost to Jesus. And, and for this, we're going to go to the Gospel of John. Have a look in John chapter 1, verse 29. It says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one, whom, this is the one I meant when I said... A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain on is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Do you see what he does there? 
he identifies Jesus as the chosen one, as the Messiah, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And that's John's primary role. His job is to prepare people, for, prepare Israel for the coming of Jesus by just pointing him out and saying, look, there he is, Israel. This is the one, this is the guy that we've been waiting for, the one that I baptised, he's the one. He's the chosen one. He acts like a big signpost to Jesus. You know when you're out on the country roads or you're driving north or something up the coast, there's always those enormous big McDonald signs, you know the ones, the ones your kids always see. It doesn't matter if they're asleep, they still manage to see them. And, and, and from that point on, they're like, Dad, can we get some chicken nuggets, Macca's this time, we're on holidays, a special treat, Dad, can we get McDonald's, please? And the sign says, 10 kilometres to McDonald's, and then 5 kilometres to McDonald's, and you're just hoping the kids are not seeing these signs, and then McDonald's when you arrive in the town. And that is what John does for Jesus. He's the great signpost. He's saying the Messiah is coming. He's really close. Look, there is the Lamb of God, the one that I baptised. He's the chosen one. That's his primary role. He points out and identifies Jesus. So that Jesus is not some kind of self-proclaimed Messiah, but he's announced beforehand. The second part of his ministry is preaching and baptising. So if you flick back over to Luke chapter 3, says there in verse 3, he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then down in verse 7, it says, John said to the crowds who came out to be baptised by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Now, what's he trying to help people to see here? He's trying to beat out of them this notion that they're Israelites and so they can rest on the laurels of their ancestry. See, they think, I've checked Ancestry.com and I come from the line of Abraham. I've got it sorted because I'm, I'm part of the family. And John says, no, that actually counts for nothing. What you need is real repentance. In order to be ready for the arrival of the Messiah, you need repentance. And that's actually what his baptism was all about. They're not two things, but one thing. The baptism was this very tangible way of expressing their repentance towards God. I want to dig down a little here and think about what repentance is, because sometimes repentance can feel a little bit like a, like a dirty word. So what is it? Well, first, notice in verse 3 that John talks about repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what repentance looks like first and foremost is, is an acknowledgement that we have not been the people that we want to be, let alone the people that God wants us to be. And so we actually need forgiveness from God. God who are flocking to the Jordan for John's baptism, this is probably not what they were expecting. They were probably expecting a baptism that kind of came as another notch on their belt to declare them to be in the right with God, part of the Abrahamic family. But Israel, well, they'd wandered a long way from living out their faith in God. They'd stopped listening to the Word of God and obeying the law of God. 
And so the very first step of their repentance was to acknowledge they need forgiveness from God. And that's the hardest step of the Christian life. Heartfelt contrition over our offence to God. I always want to play down that aspect of sin. In uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, as I've been reading the book of Romans, and one of the things he comments in his commentary is, is he says, and this was about the time that he was writing in the 70s, he says that people often express sin to be a, a horizontal phenomena, a problem between humankind. And so therefore it was probably something that we could fix ourselves. And, and, and I was thinking, well, that's exactly what we do today, isn't it? We reduce sin down to the horizontal. The offence of sin in our world today is only ever spoken of in terms of what it does to us or, or, or even what the effect of our, our actions has on the creation around us in an environmental sense. But we don't talk about sin as being a Godward offence that requires His forgiveness. But friends, that's your greatest need. Forgiveness. That's your friend's greatest need. That's your grandma's greatest need. Forgiveness. Forgiveness from God because our actions, even if they're against one another, are in the end most offensive to God. And repentance is a wonderful thing because not only do we own our sin, but we give our sin to God. And as a result, forgiveness flows. Our relationship with God is restored. And the reason for the fact that actually with God is restored through our act of repentance is, is that Jesus has achieved forgiveness for us by his death on the cross. And so when we confess our sin to God, forgiveness becomes our reality because Jesus has already paid for it. Jesus sacrificed himself in my place so I can be okay with God. And that is how John prepares the people of God for the arrival of Jesus. But not all his ministry, his death, his resurrection. He says, you want to be ready for the king and his kingdom? Get your hearts ready through repentance. I wonder whether you're ready to tell Jesus this Christmas that you need forgiveness. Friends, peace with God is the best thing that you will ever know. The second thing we learn about repentance here is that repentance is, it's much more than feeling sorry for what you've done. It actually bears fruit in your life. Have a look what he says in verse 7 to him. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. See, what John was looking for here was not lip service to God. He wasn't offering the people of God a get-out-of-jail-free card And it was almost as if he could see into their hearts and recognise that these people weren't genuinely seeking forgiveness. They were coming out to the Jordan, just kind of being swept along by the crowds. And he rebukes them and he says, he's urging them to have genuine repentance. And yes, that starts with this kind of acknowledgement of wrongdoing before God and against God, but then it's to bear fruit. See, if there's genuine repentance, there will be transformation in a person's life. Repentance is actually a whole-of-life activity. It's more than an action, it's actually a posture. 
Now, what we think of when we think about repentance is we often think, well, that's the antidote that's required when I willfully sin against God. It's what I need to do in order to get forgiven. But Jesus has already done what you need, what needs to be done in order for you to be forgiven. Repentance is is much more than that. It's much more than thinking of all the wrong things I've done and saying sorry to God. Repentance is a posture before God that says, I want to live for you. I want to live your way, God. In the case of the Israelites who came out to the Jordan, it was for them to begin to live in under God's rule again, to submit themselves Old Testament word in anticipation for the arrival of the King. For us, it's choosing to live under the Lordship of Jesus, to turn away from sin and to Jesus, and to begin to live a life that reflects His priorities, His purposes, His desires, His love, His compassion, His mercy, His holiness. Repentance is this lifelong commitment of putting off sin and growing more like Christ. Now, the battle we fight, whether we're Christians or not, is we can end up thinking that our fruit is the basis of our salvation. We can end up thinking, well, I've tidied myself up before God now and so things are going to be okay. Or we can end up thinking, actually, I've done a really good job this year of living Jesus' way and begin to think that it's our moral standing or our good behaviour that actually makes us okay with God. But the greatest threat to true repentance is my tendency to trust in myself. My tendency to say, I'm just going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and make myself presentable before God. And so even in repentance, we must constantly cling to Jesus and the forgiveness He offers us as a gift. So are you ready for Jesus? Because it's really easy, isn't it, to drift along with the crowds. It's easy to kind of find yourself just floating about and wandering into Christmas and buying bluey underpants and getting Christmas ham and making Christmas preparations and thinking about when are we going to have the annual viewing of Elf or National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation or Die Hard. And I want us to stop and just take stock of what John does here. He points at Jesus. He says to me, look, there is the reason for the season. Here is the reason for all of the festivities and the nativity scenes and the school craft projects. And Jesus came into this world to take away the sin of the world. He shouts at He says, don't miss out on who Jesus really is. Now, if you're visiting us today and you're not sure about Jesus yet, we want you to keep coming back. Keep coming back each Sunday because over the next few Sundays we're going to be continuing to look at Old Testament promises that are fulfilled in Jesus. Don't miss that sign that John is holding up for us today. But the second thing he does for us is he helps us to know how we should be ready for the King. So whether we've been a Christian all of our life or we're not yet a Christian, John's message is really clear here, isn't it? Prepare your hearts for Jesus. Don't be drifting away from God. Maybe you've been dabbling in sin or whatever it is. Get back to Jesus. Take it all to Him in prayer and lay it out all before. Allow yourself once again to be overwhelmed by the death. Do that today, friends. But there's a third point of application here that I just, I just want to touch on. 
See, when you read Matthew chapter 11, Jesus at this point is talking about John the Baptist to some of John the Baptist's followers. And this is what he says in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 11. He says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, where does John's greatness come from? Well, he's the greatest prophet yet, right? Because he points unambiguously to Jesus. He looks at Jesus and he says, that's him. That's the king. That's the lamb of God. That's the one who's going to take away the sin of the world. But then Jesus goes on. And he says, yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, what's he talking about there? How can I, John the Baptist? Because that's what he's saying. How can you be greater than John the Baptist? Well, it's not because of any but because this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can point even more clearly to Jesus than John could. How? How is that possible when John could see him and point his finger at him? Well, John couldn't tell people about the death and resurrection, could he? He couldn't tell them what Jesus has done to offer us forgiveness. But we can. We can. And we're greater in the kingdom than even John the Baptist. Does that blow your mind? What are you going to do with that thought? What are you going to do this Christmas with that truth? Maybe put on a backyard carols event for some friends? Invite a friend to church. Tell people about Jesus at your Christmas family lunch. Or maybe it's as simple as working really hard at reminding your kids that Jesus is the reason for the season. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the works he did. We thank you that he points unambiguously to Jesus and says, look, here he is, the one we've been waiting for. We thank you that he reminds us of what it looks like to prepare our hearts for Jesus through repentance. And Father, we're blown away by the fact greater in the kingdom than John. Not because of any greatness in ourselves, but because we can point even more unambiguously to Jesus. Help us to do that this Christmas. Amen.